0: Hey everybody, this is Tina again with Good Nurse Bad Nurse. Welcome back to another episode. This week we have a longtime friend of the podcast and fellow nurse podcaster, Kevin McFarlane with Art of Emergency Nursing. Welcome back, Kevin.
1: Well, Tina, thanks so much for having me back. It's been it's been a while since we've done this. So I'm super excited to do it again. Love being on your podcast. Big fan of of what you're doing. Thanks for having me on.
0: Absolutely. It's always good to have you on. When we get to the good nurse portion, we're going to talk about Kevin because Kevin has a new designation that we want to talk about. It's going to be a little bit of an educational experience to kind of hear about this designation that I think a lot of people aren't real familiar with. It sounds familiar, but we're going to to kind of dig into this. It's a fellow designation, right, Kevin? Yep, absolutely. But of course, we're going to start off with our Badner story which this week is actually a doctor and it's funny I was telling Kevin before we started the show I thought I had already done this story I've done that before to myself where I was like wait I already did this story and then I could not I went back Literally back through my episodes and was like, well, no, I guess I haven't done this story, but I was very familiar with this story. But some of these, some of these, some of these bad doctor stories all sound kind of the same, you know. And then you know, and like,
1: isn't that something? Here's a doctor and he, he killed somebody, and here's who he killed. And you know, the, some of the details mm-hmm. change, but I, some of them sometimes you know, some sometimes sound a little similar.
0: And some of these stories are going, you know, they they are going to sound familiar when. There's a there's a theme, I guess, that that follows along. And this one definitely follows a sort of domestic theme that we've seen, unfortunately, a trend. I I have no idea why it's kind of baffling. when, when, When you think about some of the things people do. so you can see what kind of jobs are out there and what they pay. Go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile. This is the story of Dr. Martin McNeil. We're going to start by talking about his wife, Michelle. Michelle McNeil's life story kind of reads like a modern day tragedy by betrayal, deception, and ultimately an untimely death that shattered the facade of a seemingly perfect family. She was a mother of eight. Eight? I, I, when I, every time I saw that, I would be like, that can't be right. Nope, she was the mother of eight. Her life, though, became, came to an abrupt and mysterious end in 2007, igniting a complex investigation that would eventually expose the dark secrets of the man she once loved and trusted, her husband, Martin McNeil. Her early life was one marked by her faith and commitment to family, she met Martin McNeil at a Mormon singles event and they, they soon married when she was only twenty one years old. Together they built a life that on the surface appeared enviable. Four biological children, followed by the adoption of four more. To have four children and then adopt four.
1: Could you imagine like the 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 size of your heart you have to have to say, hey, you know what? Mm-hmm. I already got four of my own, but let's we have room for more. Come on.
0: I think it's amazing. I just I don't know, it just really says something about about her. Impressive. And mhm yeah, definitely her commitment to family and how much she loved children. I think it's amazing. Definitely a testament to at least her willingness to open her heart and home to those in need. Martin had some pretty impressive credentials. He was a doctor and a lawyer. That is impressive. I I've, I've had I've actually had a doctor on the show before that's that was both a doctor and a lawyer. He was a neurosurgeon and then became an attorney. That's that's somebody who's just addicted to learning, I guess. Addicted to right? credentials or something. I don't know. Right?
1: Like, like you're a doctor and a lawyer. Like why? Like what, what's, what's mm-hmm. but you
0: know? Yeah. And the neurosurgeon that I had on, he's fantastic. He helps people in that get into situation the people who are in the medical you know in like doctors who get into legal issues you know and, and if you're a doctor and you understand all of the medical side of things and then you become an attorney imagine how great of an attorney you would be
1: oh you, you'd be you'd be the perfect attorney for like malpractice
0: right you'd get then exactly that's exactly right so he was the patriarch of what seemed to be an idyllic close-knit family However, beneath the veneer of their family life were currents of control and manipulation. He exerted a considerable amount of influence over Michelle, an issue that became painfully evident when Michelle confronted him over a suspected extramarital affair. Here she goes and confronts him thinking that he's having an affair after this confrontation that Martin persuaded Michelle to undergo facelift surgery, a procedure that she had no intention on her own. It would have never occurred to her to do. He, so she she approaches him and says, "I think you're having an affair." And somehow he t- turns that into a conversation about making improving her appearance.
1: Like, well, maybe I wouldn't have an affair if you were prettier.
0: Like, that's exactly what it sounds I, like, uh, somehow in a backhanded imagine, way or some you, you know you passive aggressive the, way of
1: saying, yeah, the manipulative person that would be like. I'm not having an affair, but you know what? You could you could maybe improve your things to make sure I don't have an affair. That's just red flags all over the place.
0: The sad thing is, it sounds like she loved her husband so much that she wanted to try to, to do whatever she could to, to salvage their marriage. She wanted to try to please him because she actually did have the surgery. So the surgery itself was a success, but what followed was a series of events that raised questions about Martin's intentions. He insisted on her having this cocktail of powerful medications. In other words, he approached her surgeon and basically said, oh, she's going to need this and this and this. And it was, you know, sleeping medications, benzos, pain medications, a ridiculous amount of sedating medications for someone that just had surgery, which I, of course, they're going to need something for pain, but it's it it's, to me, it just sounds crazy. Yeah, like all the medications that you know, that's, oh, we she needs them all. You're like, does she though? Right, and these drugs are potent enough to suppress the central nervous system and potentially can be lethal if you if you combine them. It's uh, we all know this, he definitely knew this. Their daughter Alexis Summers, now her their daughter ultimately is going to wind up changing her name to Summers, which is her mother's maiden name. Alexis Summers noted Michelle's distress after her operation and also noticed the strange manner in which her father Managed her medications. Michelle's own premonition, a fear of Martin being responsible, if anything were to happen to her, would soon take a hauntingly prophetic tune. So she actually mentioned to her daughter, Alexis, that if something happens to me, he probably did it. Isn't that
1: great? Can you imagine hearing that about your father? What do you even say to that? (laughs) Would even say to that? That's crazy.
0: It's sad. It's really sad that she would have had to come to that realization about you know her that her mother, her mother is a, that afraid of her father. She apparently wasn't able to see really good, and so she said, "Let me see what these pills are." She told her daughter, "Let me see what the what they are and how they feel, so that I can know what he's giving giving to me." In other words, she wanted to know okay, you tell me what this is, let me feel it, so I know, okay, that is Ativan, or that is Ambien, or that is Oxycodone, whatever. And that way she would know when he gives her her pills what she's taking because she didn't trust him. I,
1: I just can't imagine having having to worry
0: about that, like with someone you love and
1: live with and, and care for, and to have to be worried like, oh well, what if he did try to poison me? What if he did try to give me too much?
0: Yeah, you would hope that it would be a good thing that you would have a physician or a healthcare person as a spouse oh, that yeah. would be able to care for you, take care of you, give you advice or look out for for signs and symptoms of, you know, infection or, or post-op complications. You not worrying that they were going to somehow take advantage of your vulnerability. It's just crazy. Well, She was found dead in her home shortly after the surgery. Martin reported the incident in what was described as a completely hysterical state. The death was hastily attributed to natural causes, with cardiovascular disease cited as the likely culprit. So what happened is she was at home. He went to get his daughter, and when they came into the house, he sent her to look for her mom it was you know go and check on your mom and when she went in she was in the bathtub and she was not breathing so he actually sent if you can kind of imagine where this is going obviously we wouldn't be doing this story if it if it didn't have you know a tragic end and we and we kind of all know who's going to be responsible ultimately uh imagine that that he sent his daughter in to find her what
1: what a what a despicable person.
0: What a despicable person, absolutely. Oh. Great great way to put that.
1: It's the nicest word I can come up with on a family-friendly podcast.
0: It, right. I know. It's it's disgusting. It really is. The family could not get over the this feeling of being really suspicious about this, particularly with Martin's strange behavior after her death. There was a woman by the name of Gypsy Jillian Willis. Remember, we said that Michelle was concerned that he had been having an affair. Well, what she had done is she asked her daughter to go through her dad's phone and see if there were any numbers that kind of stuck out. And she went through the phone bill and kind of compared things. And she found this person, this Gypsy Jillian Willis was somebody that he talked to on a regular enough basis that it definitely seemed suspicious. And that is why, I mean, obviously she wouldn't have been doing this investigation if she didn't already have suspicions, but it was certainly why she felt like she could confront him about it. She felt like that was some, you know, evidence. So now all of a sudden that his wife just passed away, very soon after he moves this person, this gypsy Jillian Willis into their home. As a nanny. The audacity, I mean, also the stupidity, really. It's just kind of like, really? I mean. Yeah. Like, here's your new mom.
1: Here's your new mom. Your new mom's here now. Like, imagine the the person you're having an affair
0: with. Your wife dies and you move them in immediately. This guy's just asking to get caught. That's exactly my thought. I mean, I'm going for someone who clearly is smart enough to not only hold a medical degree but also a JD. You know, to have to be an attorney and and a doctor. You don't have the foresight. You don't have the ability to see where this is going to go. Now, one thing I will say is he probably didn't realize that his daughter knew that name. That was kind of like something I'm sure he didn't expect when he said, oh, there could because he sort of very slyly was like, oh, there's a I found a new nanny. And she's like, oh, really? Who? And he said, oh, and she's going to be living. Oh, I think her name is Gypsy. Like he kind of acted as though he wasn't real familiar. Well, she immediately was just like, oh, I'm I know exactly who that is. In fact, mom was kind of suspicious that you were having an affair with that person. So she confronted him very quickly about that the, the audacity to think that like well it, it's one of those where you know, he's
1: probably so smart he thinks there's no way i'm gonna get caught
0: well his daughter was smarter than he was yep. thank goodness we all know that when we're taking any medication or supplement dosage matters and it's important to take enough to get the desired result for example only taking a 10 milligram tylenol might not help with your headache well, the same is true for CBD. If you try a low-dose CBD product, you may not feel anything. But it's not the CBD's fault. The dosage is the problem. This is why CBDstat only makes high-dose CBD products that actually work. And now, their products are getting even stronger. CBDstat is happy to announce that they're launching a new extra-strength version of its highly popular topical products that have 7,500 milligrams of CBD. affordable. And don't forget, all you healthcare workers out there get a special additional discount to help keep you strong. Just head to cbdstat.care forward slash healthcare and find your new secret weapon. That's cbdstat.care forward slash healthcare. So the truth began to unravel as Michelle's daughters and family really pressed for further investigation. Because as I said, for some inexplicable reason, the police decided just right from the get go that It was not suspicious at all that she at 50 years old uh, would have died from cardiovascular complications after having a facelift and that she drowned in her bathtub. But I could see where they could easily make that assumption just based
1: on how many meds she was on. They'd be like, this is just, you know, medication. You know, this is all medication here, right? Like, and, and, you know, with all these medications, her, you know,
0: 50 year old woman,
1: uh, I could see where they'd be like, oh, it's not super surprising.
0: It's not impossible. And it's, it's it's not like under normal circumstances, you know, where there wasn't a husband that was moving their yeah. mistress in to be the nanny right after. Yeah. Um These things happen after surgery. People have cardiovascular events all the time. You know, you can have a PE, you can have ju- just all sorts of issues. At a quick
1: glance, it might just look
0: natural. And you're just like, it. it's natural. This happens. So... Death by misadventure. Right, like, you know. The problem is they jumped a little too quickly. It's it was just like, Well, okay, there yeah, I just hate the the husband says it's an accident, I guess it's an accident, and they didn't really well, the family was having none of it. The daughters and the family, they were going, No, this is way too suspicious and they pressed for further investigation into the strange circumstances of her death. Investigators dug Whitney and Jeff Robinson revisited the case, revealing a pattern of fraudulent behavior in Martin's past, including the identity theft of one of his adopted daughters. Wow. Apparently, after her mother passed away, he sent one of his adopted daughters overseas to visit and then didn't provide a way for her to come back. She was only supposed to be there for a limited amount of time. And essentially was trying to abandon her there and then took on her identity in order to provide for financial gain, basically. Wow. So, yeah. A review by the medical examiner eventually shifted the official cause of Michelle's death from natural to undetermined. After a toxicology report, which allowed for murder charges to be filed against Martin. So, a toxicology report basically showed, yeah, she's probably, she should have some of this stuff in her system, but not that much. Martin McNeil's trial was a culmination of years of perseverance by Michelle's family to seek justice. It revealed unsettling details about Michelle's post surgery care and featured. Damning testimonies from the McNeil children, who accused their father of deliberately overdosing their mother. Further damning evidence came from Martin's own mistress, who testified that he had boasted about his ability to induce a heart attack. This is not Gypsy, the mistress that he had, and she said, mm, "Yeah, there was a time in kind of like private conversation that he pretty he he basically said he there there is a way." hypothetically, that you could induce a heart attack in a way that it would look natural. So given the circumstances, that alone, that standing alone, you can hear, you, you can think about medical professionals, good grief, look at my podcast, I'm talking about stuff like this all the time. So people talk about things, and there's nothing in and of itself, that conversation would not be suspicious, but you pile all this stuff together. And that's, that's what prosecutors do, right? They build a case. So you you have this piece of circumstantial evidence and this piece of circumstantial evidence and this piece. And before you know it, it's kind of like, okay, (laughs) you put all that together and somebody's looking pretty dadgum guilty.
1: It starts to uh, tip the scales and and kind of weigh, weigh in one way or another, you know.
0: Well, the trial was a long and painful process for the McNeil family, but it ended with Martin facing the consequences of his actions held accountable by the legal system for Michelle's tragic death. The once respected doctor and lawyer now seen as a murderer and fraudster found himself at the merc- mercy of the justice he once practiced. So apparently, you know, we, we, I, t- I was telling you about the toxicology report. Well, he had one of his daughters, Boyfriend, it was the boyfriend or husband. He had them flush all of her leftover medications down the toilet the day of her death.
1: He's like scared get rid of all it, so we don't know how much is actually there.
0: If you think about this, you you have your father, your your mother. Your mother just died. Your father is is saying, "Oh, I can't, I can't stand to look at that. Get that, get that out of my face. I know that that's what killed her." I, I, do, I can't look at it. Get it out of my face. It's making me so sad. Okay, Dad. Yeah, absolutely. And that that was that's essentially what happened. Now, fast forward a few months or however long it to kind of took them to process and start really thinking about it. And they're, they're in retrospect, they're going, "Man, he asked me to flush all that, you know, all that medication." And, and I'm sure they were they were kind of kicking themselves, like, "Oh, like, why did I, I destroyed do that?" All the evidence. <laughs> right, but they did it. Because they thought they were helping their father, who was grieving, who was in shock, and and I'm sure they were in shock. Because because you know when they're you know when they're dumping it in the toilet, it's not
1: like they're counting them out, right? But but had investigators had those medications, they very well may have counted out and said, "Hey, look, she's had this prescription for five days, and there's ten days worth missing. Maybe there's too much that that had been taken." But, yes, they would have definitely it, looked it at that could have been just very easily you know looked at as you know, potential suicide. I mean, it could have been you know it could have been anything, but
0: it would really make no sense at all that somebody would would take their own life after they've had a facelift and where they're just you know they just had a facelift, but i mean you you can't count anything out. Yeah. There was definitely no indication that anything like that had happened or that she that she would have done anything like that yeah. but it it see. You know, we we had a I had a nurse on a couple of weeks ago who is a nurse forensic investigator, I believe was her title. Oh yeah. It was kind of like a long official kind of a, and she's in Texas actually. In this particular case they would call her, she would show up and as a nurse, she goes in and looks for the things that she knows to look for and that's exactly what she would have immediately said, "Where's her medication?"
1: and she would have gone right to it. I recently interviewed a I recently interviewed a forensic nurse investigator on my podcast as well. And he was what, who was it amazing? Oh, he. It was a, this it was, was he, a woman. His name's Caitlin, I believe, and oh, he's amazing. He would be a great guest for your podcast.
0: Oh, I've got okay. We're, we're gonna talk after. Like I want that. you to send me that info. <laughs> yeah, I'll
1: send you his info. He'd be he'd be an amazing guest.
0: Yeah, I'll send you the info for for this one, too, because she, oh, my goodness, she does all kinds of stuff. She does, like, aesthetic nursing. She has, like, a million jobs, and she loves all of them. Awesome. <laughs> She's just awesome. That's how yeah. this
1: guy was, too. This guy was a sane nurse and then forensic investigator. It was, it was it's the same thing. A, yeah, it, 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 I, I'm sure they, they'd probably be, like, two peas in a pod. This guy was out of somewhere in the Midwest, and, like, like big social media presence with this guy, and real very involved in in you know forensic nursing, and oh, and and just the personality, like interesting personality. He you would love you would love this guy. He'd be a great guest for your show.
0: Yeah. So oh, absolutely. The girl that I'm talking about, she has a podcast called Pushing Up Lilies, Oh, where I'm she check talks that out. about all these different cases. Yeah, you know, it's really good. I'm gonna check that out. So. Isn't it interesting? I love talking to all these different nurses and finding out all these different these different jobs, positions, fascinating roles that we can do. It's as amazing.
1: Nurses. Like there's so many things we can do as a nurse that are
0: like not mm-hmm. bedside. Yeah, And they're all. I mean, it's yeah. all fascinating stuff. Michelle's life, so full of potential and kindness, was cut short by the one person who would and should have protected her above all others. Her death and the subsequent revelation of the circumstances surrounding. It left the McNeil family in pieces, their trust irrevocably broken, yet in their relentless quest for justice, they honored Michelle's memory and ensured that her story would not be forgotten. They have gone on to tell her story in interviews. There was a a really good Dateline episode done where they interviewed Alexis and, and I believe her sister as well. It's it's just such a a reminder of you know all of the darkness that can can be there you know beneath the facade of a family life. It's sad you don't know who you're dealing with. You just in life you could. You, I think that sometimes we see each other, especially on social social media, but just in general too, we can kind of see other people and and just think, wow, they've just got it all together. Wow, what a you know it. I don't know. It's just you just don't know what someone's going through. It's al- it's always
1: crazy, you know, because like. I think how many people knew, loved, and trusted this guy, and and just imagine, yes, imagine finding out as a family member, someone that close to you, is responsible for murdering someone else that close to you. It's just like the the the, the like feel like talk about feeling like the fuller comes out on you. I couldn't imagine a worse feeling of you know finding out that someone you you thought you've known your whole life and
0: when you're talking about someone who is a, just a sociopath they basically if a person in their life that is standing in the way of them being happy, of them getting what they want, it's as if that person is insignificant. They can yep. just completely eliminate them.
1: It's crazy. It's just crazy to think that that I mean to kill someone, to kill some killing a stranger would be bad enough, but to kill someone you love like I just don't
0: What I I never, I know, Kevin, and what I can, it always just is so incredibly, just deeply disturbing to me when I think about people who are capable of killing the mother or father of their children. Even if you can't stand the person, even if you just, you know, they, you've gotten to the point that you just can't stand them. You don't want to ever see them again. That is the, your, your, your children's mother what, I, I, it's so hard to understand how you can inflict that kind of pain. You know that their life will never be the same. There's going to be this gaping hole in their life and they will never get past it. They will never, it's, it's, there's no way to, it's unfathomable. I don't, I will never be able to understand it. And the number of stories that are like this, it's, it's horrifying. you you gotta be a sociopath. You gotta
1: be someone who just like truly doesn't care about anything else other than yourself.
0: Yeah. And I guess psychopath, I guess I I don't even, I've, I always forget the difference, but I feel like psychopath is like, you could just, you can kill somebody and it really doesn't bother you. It doesn't, like you don't have any way of empathizing. If you could empathize and you really loved your children, you, I don't think you could inflict that sort of pain, no matter what the gain would be for you. I just don't, you know, I don't, I don't see how. Absolutely. Absolutely. They actually ended up having their father's name removed from their mother's headstone. They did not want to have. And as I said earlier, Alexis had, she changed her last name. She she, she was in medical school. You know, I failed to mention that. But one of the things she was help helping, she was in medical school while this was going on, while this happened, you know, and, and when she saw what was going, going on with her mother after the surgery, she recognized these things because she was a medical student and she kind of, you know, understood some things. She did go on to graduate from medical school and she became a doctor and she did not want her name in any way associated with her father. She just wanted to be completely severed from, from Makes him. Sense. Yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. I can imagine. I thought so too. So, what a, what a terrible story. As I always try to look for things that we can learn, you know, the, the light that we can kind of bring. It's so hard to, to find sometimes. And in a story like this, I don't even know what in the world it you know it would be because you can't sometimes it's unavoidable to come in contact with people who are like this Martin McNeil are they are very manipulative. They come across, they're so charming, they can be so likable and lovable, even though they don't have the capacity to love someone else. They are very charming. They know what to do, they know what to say. To have people all around them just love them. And it,
1: it seems it seems to be a trait with people who are like like serial killers. You always hear like serial people say about serial killers, like "Oh, nice guy, yeah. everybody loved him." The the one and only like like truly like evil person that I've taken care of in my nursing years. He was there. He was in custody. They were worried he was trying to break out of jail, and and the corrections officers that was there was like understand this man is charming he's nice he's sweet he's kind do not let your guard down and i was like Roger that got it and and he was he was nice he was kind he was charming he seemed like a really nice guy very friendly very charming and and but just a stone cold killer i'll never forget cuz what they thought they actually thought he was there trying to escape and he came to the hospital for medical care and and they thought he was this was an escape attempt cuz he had already escaped once and they were like, they were on guard and they were like, be careful. Don't trust this guy for even a second. Like, just assume he is, he is out to hurt you because that's what we're assuming. He's out to hurt you. So a little intimidating when you're like, now go take care of that guy. <laughs>
0: so. Yeah. Good luck. Intimid. Be careful. Let me know how it goes. Don't get too close with that needle. <laughs>
1: yeah. They were. Uh, yeah. Yeah. He was. And, and again. Nice guy, nice guy seemed like a nice guy. I mean, wasn't a nice guy, but
0: so I have to tell you guys about an experience I had with a nursing student. So, you know, I've been doing travel nursing. Well, this hospital where I'm at has a lot of LPN students doing their clinicals there. So, one of them was following me around one day and she noticed my stethoscope, and of course. Y'all know the Echo technology company that sponsors our podcast. They teamed up with Littman to make the stethoscopes, to beat all stethoscopes, the 3M Littman Core digital stethoscope. And this is the one that I use now. So she said, oh, my gosh, I've been wanting to try one of those. So, of course, I let her use it. And she just could not stop talking about it for the rest of the shift. It was so cute. She was like, you know, I can't hear anything with my normal stethoscope because I have tinnitus. If you're like me and you don't want ads interrupting your podcast flow, you can access our episodes ad-free just by becoming a patron. You can also have access to bonus material like episodes being released early, the video footage of me and my guests recording the episode, and a brand new podcast that's offered exclusively to our Patreon subscribers called Breakroom Conversations. Your support will really help us to keep the podcast running smoothly. To learn more, just head on over to our website, goodnursebadnurse.com, and click the link to become a patron. Well, I guess that wraps it up for the bad nurse portion of our show. So now we can get into the good nurse portion, which I'm really excited about. I I want to dig into this designation that you have to tell everybody, explain everyone, Kevin. First of all, Kevin is, uh, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, he is a podcaster. He has a podcast called Art of Emergency Nursing. You've been doing that. I feel like as long, if not longer, than I've been doing this podcast, I, right?
1: I, I've been doing it for about three or four years. I've been doing the Art of Emergency Nursing. So I have that podcast, and I have another podcast called How Not to Kill Your Patient. And that one's a little bit more yes. clinical. Art of Emergency Nursing really is just kind of storytelling. With fellow emergency nurses, I sit down and we hear about them. I mean, they tell some of the stories of, of patients that they've taken care of that have influenced their life or their care or their the way they nurse. So. It's been a blast to do. I, I've been doing it, really, like I said, for probably about three or four years. And have got to meet through the podcast, I meet amazing people like you, and I meet amazing people from all over the world. I've interviewed nurses from all over the world, and it's been just a blast.
0: Yes, it's definitely one of my, one of my favorite things about the having done this podcast is all of the different people that I've gotten to meet.
1: So, so many people that you you may have never met otherwise. Just by by you know being being part of this podcast and and certainly that's how my journey has been for me.
0: Yeah, it's definitely been. Uh, yeah, well, that's what I was gonna want to get into. What is it this this new designation that you have?
1: So last year I was inducted into what we call the Academy of Emergency Nursing. So the academy the Academy of Emergency Nursing is what they call a, a fellowship designation for the the Emergency Nursing Association. So. When I when I tell people and when they see my you know, credentials, it says you know F A E N or Fellow of the Academy of Emergency Nursing. People sometimes get confused with a, uh, the fellowship designation with a fellowship. What may maybe some of your nurses may have gone through if they've gone through a fellowship, it's a little bit different than that fellowship designation. So in a fellowship that like maybe a hospital would have typically means a nurse with some experience. Is going to change specialties. So for instance, in the hospital that I worked at, we had a fellowship program where if you were, a, say, a med surgeon nurse for years, but you wanted to make the transition to ICU, you had to make the transition to an emergency nurse, then they had a fellowship, which was kind of like a, almost like a preceptorship, but for a nurse with more experience. So people get those two things confused and they'll say, oh yeah, well, I was a fellow at this hospital. And and, and certainly that is a, an important thing because it's a great way to, to train nurses into a new specialty or train experienced nurses for something different. But the fellowship designation is a little bit different. In the case of the Academy of Emergency Nursing, that fellowship designation is for people who've made a sustained and significant contribution to that specialty. And like I said, there's about 200 in the, in the academy now. And I was honored to be one of those 200 people last year in large part due to my podcast in large part that my significant contribution to the body of 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 knowledge for emergency nursing was mostly around my work in the podcast and and sharing nursing stories and advancing the the specialty that way by sharing stories sharing knowledge and reaching people that that may not be able to be reached somewhere else right so I have a friend who's a researcher who's brilliant but she's you know one of the things she says is sometimes people aren't reading papers but they may very well be listening to podcasts so it's a mm-hmm. great way to reach people in a different way than than maybe had been done previously
0: So who decided
1: that you would get this How this typically works for for most fellowships most fellowships it's kind of an open call they have a, a kind of an open call for for fellows period but typically what they lean on is to become a fellow, you need to be recommended by a fellow. So a, okay. a fellow, someone who's already a fellow has to be one of the people who write, they they typically write these letters of support for your induction into the academy. So for instance, for in my case, when I became a fellow, I had a person who was a fellow already who said, hey, I see what you're doing. I, I, I'm looking at your body of work. And I think you should become a fellow in the Academy of Emergency Nursing. So she wrote one of the letters of support. And then I had to get a second letter from someone else. And in a lot of cases, like for instance, for the fellow in the Academy of uh, the American Academy of Nurses, I think it has to be written by two fellows. So it just varies by, by specialty, but typically what it is, it's a recommendation of another fellow to bring you into their, to their Academy. Now, when it was first approached to me, I, I remember just thinking to myself, like, no, that's for that's for like smarter people than me. Like, I'm just a guy who gets on a podcast and 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 talks uh, smack with his friends and tells stories. And <laughs> Two years ago, before I became a fellow, two brilliant nurses came to me and said, "Hey, we we think you should look into this," and they were both academy members and thought, "Hey, we we would like to, you know, consider applying for the academy." And I would, at the time, I was like, "I'm me. Yeah, I'm not." not worthy of that and didn't think much of it and then the next year someone else brought it to me and said hey you know this is something you really maybe should look at and i i i looked at it and i considered it but really what made me consider it is is i spoke to a young lady who was a listener of the podcast and she was like you have no idea how much influence you have on my generation of nurses that that maybe aren't reading the literature but maybe are listening to the podcast and and she one of the things she said was she said, you know, you're kind of the bridge between this newer generation of nurses and an older generation that that gives them an opportunity to share their wisdom with people who may not have heard it otherwise. And and she was really the one that really pushed me to to okay. I was like, okay, if you're saying this, then then maybe maybe you're right. Maybe, maybe there is some validity to this. And I, I put in the application and was honored to To find out that I I got accepted, so I mean one of the huge, one of the biggest honors I've ever had in my career for sure. So again, I was speechless when it happened. It was an honor to be included, and still an honor to be part of that that academy. And again, academy is very you know depending on your specialty. But for instance, for the Academy of Emergency Nursing, their goal is not just to you get designated as a as a fellow, and then you're kind of set out to pasture. Like okay. You did something really great, now go over there and, and and wait to retire. They really want you, they expect you to, they don't want you to fade into the background. They want you to still keep working and keep working to advance the profession. And then they give you opportunities to do that. So I've had the opportunity this year to participate on a work group with other academy members and start looking at different processes and different things in emergency nursing that, that maybe we could... Weigh in on or, or give some opinion on, which has been just a huge honor. So it's been it's been a lot of fun. It's been an exciting. Uh, it's been an exciting group to be a part of. And yeah, you know, I, I look around the room, and you know, we have a meeting once a year. And I look around the room and I think to myself, like, There's some real heavyweights in this room here. And I look around and think, wow, you know, amazing authors and people who've you know really made a, a huge impact in the in the specialty of emergency nursing. And then think to myself, you know, how honored am I that, that they include me as one of theirs? So,
0: that you belong, you and then you belong there too, Kevin. Yeah. I, I, I think that it's so easy to have imposter syndrome in situations oh. like that where you're just like, oh, look at all these amazing people. And yeah, um, and you're just thinking, ooh, what if they figure out I'm not supposed to be here? <laughs> That's that sounds like something yeah. I would be thinking to myself, oh, oh. why am I here? Yeah. Look and, at these people. But man, you've done some amazing things and you clearly. Have made huge contributions to into you know, people's lives in, in the area of not just emergency nursing, definitely emergency nursing, but I think nursing in in general. And that I mean, what you do is very, very important, and I, I you definitely don't want to minimize that in any way. Yeah, it's a, it's an honor, and I'm I'm
1: I'm honored every time someone downloads the podcast and listens and. And you know, I'm, I'm honored to to share that space in their ears or in their car or wherever they're they may be listening. And and it's I never forget what a what an honor that is. So but yeah, you're right. Imposter syndrome to the to the hilt, like
0: <laughs> yeah, for sure. I, I remember feeling that when I became a nurse at I think when I I probably when it was most pronounced was when I literally took my first, you know, patient by myself without a preceptor i think that was probably the most imposter syndrome i have had ever experienced definitely up until that point maybe maybe since then there's been a few times since then where i'm just like you know like if i would changed roles you know went to to see, became a team leader i remember that was that was definitely a huge <laughs> feeling of imposter syndrome i remember thinking why am i who do you think you are you know what you think you can like handle this whole floor. If something goes wrong, you're going to be the person. What is wrong with you? I, I just that little thing, person inside of your head. You every, know. I think every nurse
1: feels that in a lot of different ways, right? Like, and I think every nurse has is been there. And you know, you look around and you you go, "Wow!" Like, am I the? You, know, you look around one day and you're like, "Wow, I'm like probably the most experienced person here." And you're like, "Jeez, Louise," and you're like, "I don't even know anything," right? <laughs> but you—that's how I—you you, you minimize how much you do yeah.
0: know, right? Right. And you, and you minimize your experiences. And you're just so many things are, are kind of in there, you know, you obviously going to school, and being having all the experiences that you have, there's information and knowledge in your head that you don't even know is there. But there more importantly, is just that what comes with experience is the wisdom of knowing how to get answers, knowing where to go and knowing when to know that you don't know, and to you know, question yourself, question everything, be strong enough to stand up and advocate for your patient. That sort of thing is what I think is so important. It comes with experience.
1: I recently had an episode with a with a woman who's a very experienced flight nurse and, you know, been there, done that, seen it all, done it all. And she was like, man, I still look stuff up. Like, I, there's stuff I don't know. And and I was like, and she's like, there's no shame in not knowing. And, and she's like, anyone who shames you for not knowing, you know, or, or for asking a question, like shame on them. Because the reality, the reality is, is that's how we keep our patients safe,
0: is is by having that good, healthy fear of what we don't know. One thing that I remember telling people as I have precepted is, you're going to come across people. You will come across people, and I don't care how many times you hear people say, "There's no such thing as a dumb question. Ask all the questions you want." There will be people who will treat you like your question is a dumb question. They will. They're going to absolutely use that as an opportunity to somehow make themselves feel better, somehow elevate themselves. They make themselves feel smarter because you're admitting that vulnerability. But the the thing is that you have to remember is number one, if you're not willing to be vulnerable like that, if you're not willing to step up and ask a question, even though you're putting your neck out there, it might get chopped off. You might you might get humiliated if you're not willing to put yourself in that position. You should not be doing this job. Absolutely not. You just don't do it because it's dangerous for the patient. If you're not willing to 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 do that, if you're not willing to be like, I'm so sorry, but I've never had a patient with a chest tube before. Yeah, I'm gonna yeah. have to have somebody show me what. Can you please show me how do I assess this? I don't remember. I know I learned it at nursing school, but
1: uh. I shared on social media not that long ago. I shared a quote that said as an educator, the goal is to remove the shame of knowledge deficit. It's, it's so true. Like we gotta, we gotta let people know it's okay to not know everything, right? It's, it's, it's okay. It's okay to have a book and say, here, hold on, let me look at this book or hold on, let me look at this, this reference, because it's more important to be right than it is to look smart, right? So, and, and I think that's something that, that experienced nurses know, I think experienced nurses know, but sometimes have to be reminded as well, like, we're not held to the standard of knowing everything. So
0: I think that it's important to remind experienced nurses. And when I say experienced nurses, I'm not just talking I'm not talking about people that have been nursed for 30 years. You're an experienced nurse if you've been a nurse for a year. You've been off orientation for long enough that you've got your feet under you and you're you've got some confidence behind, you know, you and you you can take care of your patients pretty in, pretty independently. Sometimes you can get a little cocky at that stage. You start feeling c- confident and someone comes along who is maybe they're just off orientation. And people ask questions sometimes that you're thinking, wow, how do you not, how'd you get their nursing school? And you don't know that. I'm sorry, but I've had that question. I've had that run through my head. I'm I'm ashamed to say, yeah. but it happens. You wonder, you know, you're just like, but the, here's the thing to remember for every time you think that about somebody, and I've, t- I've this is a conversation I've had with myself If you think that about somebody, there's probably somebody else who I'm going to ask some question that they're probably going (laughs) to look at me and go, have you been a nurse for eight years and you don't know that? So I try to give people a pass. I try try, try to give people the grace that I want to be given when I step out there, put myself out there and show that vulnerability. If I say, I'm so sorry, I completely forgot what two plus two is. I know I'm supposed to know what two plus two is but I just wanted to double check with you because I I think it's four, but can I just ask you and and them not look at you like, I'm telling the manager, you're an idiot. I'm just going to have to go in there and talk to them for a few minutes and be like, uh, I'm sorry, but Tina's an idiot because she doesn't even know what 2 plus 2 is. And this is the kind of thing that happens. It's the kind of like that lateral bullying that goes on with b- among nurses. Yeah. One
1: of the things I always say is, is nursing is a team sport, right? Like we do it together and and we do it as a as a as a team, because what I might know, you might not know, what you might know, I might not know. And together we'll be better for the patient. And together as a team, we'll we can we'll we'll know more together where we can care for those patients that we're looking after. And 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 the patient the patients that we're looking after deserve that much. They deserve us to be to be good and be good stewards of that of that knowledge and that care. So it's, you know, it's always a, it's a team effort. One of the things I've always appreciated with the doctors I've worked with, you know, anytime you're in a code or something, oftentimes the doctors will say, okay, I'm out of ideas. Does anyone else have an idea? And and kind of look around the room and say, anyone else have an idea? That's something we want to try. And if not, then we're going to, you know, we're we're going to call this one. And it's, it's humbling because someone may pipe up and say, hey, well, what about this? And they'll be like, let's try it. Yeah, let's try it. Let's see what happens and and even if even if the doctor is like mm, i i may have ruled that out based on this it's team effort let's do it let's try it so you know we're, we're none of us are none of us are doing this alone none of us are doing this in a vacuum so
0: yes if we kind of are looking at it like that like don't use each other to you know, don't step on other people to elevate yourself. For one thing, I feel like if you if you don't do that, if you just do your, do your job to the best of your ability, and sp- speak up when you need to speak up in in circumstances you know certain circumstances, advocating for your patient and doing your job well, you're going to stand out. You will stand out just anyway. You don't have to step on someone else to elevate yourself. You you will stand out. Another thing is if you try doing that, if you try to step on other people, a lot of times people can see right through that. And you're, instead of making yourself look better, you're, you're only cause, you're, you're just kind of like, people are feeling sorry for the other person and looking at you like, oh my gosh, yeah. are you really I, that person? I, I, you know, I always think to myself, oh, I didn't know they were insecure. Oh, okay. Oh, mm.
1: Good. You're like, okay, well, they're insecure too. Uh, me too. I like, yeah, but I'm yeah, willing to show that. I'm not going to, I'm not going to try to hide that, but again, we're, we're all in this together and the, the, the better we can take care of patients all together as a team, you know, I don't have to have all the answers.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Well, Kevin, thank you so much for coming back on the show. I always
1: enjoy having you. Oh, my pleasure. It's it's great to be on here with you, Tina. I really appreciate you taking the time to let me hang out with you and, and say hi to your audience and uh, appreciate them and appreciate you.
0: And remind everybody where they can find your podcasts again.
1: Art of Emergency Nursing is my my podcast where it's kind of me just interviewing nurses from all over the world, and then the How Not to Kill Your Patient podcast is a it's a podcast I do with an amazing nurse researcher named Lisa Wolf, who is brilliant, and it's a little bit more clinical, a little bit more focused on kind of triage and 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 the initial assessment
0: of patients. They're both a lot of fun. Wonderful, awesome, and of course, you guys can find me at goodnursebadnurse.com. You can email me at tina at goodnursebadnurse.com. I always enjoy hearing from you guys, your stories. I've been getting some really good stories from people. I love, I just love it. I love getting emails from people. And we're on social media at goodnursebadnurse as well. And of course, before we leave, I always have to remind you, even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, be a good nurse.